So our reading today uh, will be from um, Acts 20. We will read the entire chapter. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Potter the Berean, son of Pirhas, accompanied him, and of the, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened, of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after, we, we, after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he, spent, he sent to Ephesus and, to, and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city 
that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all these who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. May God bless this reading. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you asking for your help. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your guidance. And we ask for the Holy Spirit to guide us. Guide me as I speak and proclaim your word. And guide the hearers as they receive the word with obedience and with humility. Lord, we uh, are desperate for your guidance this morning. There is no human wisdom that would fill uh, the void that we have in our hearts. It is only by your divine and heavenly wisdom and guidance that we would be um, at all feel fed and nourished this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I apologize for reading the entire chapter, but it's just very hard to stop at some point. Um, the story is compelling, it's captivating, and and by God's grace, we'll try to cover this entire chapter today. Um, if not, there is a next Sunday, but one thing I promise is that I will not keep you here until uh, the early days break when... Uh, when people are just getting bored and tired so much so actually they, the guy just fell off the window. That's not going to happen today. We have no windows. Um, but let's quickly recap um, last Sunday's uh, service. As you recall, right now Paul is, in his, is on his third missionary journey. The year is roughly 52 to 57 AD. He's mainly covering Asia Minor and Macedonia. He is actually spending almost three years, uh, three years in, in this area, especially in Ephesus. Spent about, just about three years. 
up until this point, you think he's already had the first missionary journey, second missionary journey, maybe he wrote a lot of epistles. He did not, actually. Up until this point, he only th wrote three Galatians, which is the first one, and then first and second Thessalonians. He traveled about with many helpers and co-workers. Of course, Silas was one of them. Um, but the time he dedicated to Ephesus was so significant that not only was he just a, a passerby evangelizing and preaching, but he was more of a pastor to this church. You can see in his speaking to those elders that his heart is there. He speaks uh, a farewell speech to them um, with a really keen knowledge of this congregation on, in which they will be serving because he spent that time there, again, not just as a missionary, uh, but as a pastor to this church. Later on, you will find that actually in, uh, he will write to Timothy, who was actually stayed there and he was helping the church in Ephesus about how he can uh, continue to grow this church. So he always had Ephesus on his mind, even when he also wrote to Timothy. Um, so the work continues, and uh, the chaos that happened last Sunday when, uh, not in our church, but in the message about Demetrius and causing all this confusion, all of a sudden you have a turning point here in the first, very first verse in chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. Okay, we're done. There is uproar, there is confusion, there is all this chaos, but we need to move on. We have a message, we have a mission to accomplish. And... Um, and then he moves on, and there's a couple passages until we get to this main farewell letter or farewell passage to the elders uh, of Ephesus. And uh, it's interesting when you think about people who try to uh, know that this is going to be their last time we'll meet each other. Uh, when we meet each other here every Sunday, we know that next Sunday we will meet again, and the following Sunday and the following Sunday. When I leave work, uh, leave the house in the morning and, and go to work, um, Unless God calls me uh, that day, I have an idea that I will be coming back and I'm not about to just wake all the kids up at 7 in the morning and say, I need to tell you something because this may be the last time. This, to Paul, was his last time seeing those people. And he wanted to make sure um, it really it mattered and it counted. So as you think about last words or lasting words, um, when, when your last word has to be lasting words, something that would last beyond the time frame where you spoke that. I thought of uh, several heroes of the faith, uh, what, what they said, how they said it um, on their last uh, time talking to people or maybe on their deathbed or maybe in their last sermon. And some in the Bible as well. So David, for, for example, we haven't gotten to that yet in the men's uh, study uh, group that we have. But in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, David says, again, this was his last words as the Bible dictates, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like crane that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant. Now, as David, just about to close the, that chapter in history, he is remembering once again the covenant that God uh, ordained and established with him and with his people. 
for he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desires. You think of Luther um, also as he was about to depart uh, earth, he, he said uh, these words, I am known in heaven, I am known on earth, and I am known in hell. His ministry, his work, and what he has done by the grace of God changed the trajectory of a lot of uh, reformed theology that we have today. And that's why he said he's known because of the work that he has done in the kingdom of God, that he is well known in heaven, but not just in heaven, but also on earth and in hell. And finally, he said, we are beggars. It is true. That was Luther's last words he uttered. Spurgeon, um, I couldn't find quite exactly what he said on his, uh, on his deathbed or on his last, um, last sermon, but there was, uh, he was attempting to picture, actually, before he died, before he got, he was actually very sick. He was a very sick man. In fact, in the last part of his life, he was not very active in the ministry because he was just being ministered to and, and nursed by other people. Uh, but he attempted to picture the scene at his own funeral. Um, in a little while, he said, there will be a concourse of persons in the streets. I think I hear someone inquiring, and now he's kind of thinking what may be happening on the streets when he uh, is already dead. What are, what are all these people waiting for? Someone will answer, do you not know? He's to be buried today. And who is that? It is Spurgeon. What? The man that preached at the tabernacle? Yes, it is. He is to be buried today. And then he goes on to say, this will happen very soon. And when you see my coffin carried to the silent grave, I should like every one of you, whether converted or not, to be constrained to say he did earnestly urge us in plain and simple language not to put off the consideration of eternal things. He did, not in, he did entreat us to look to Christ. Now he is gone. Our blood is not at his door if we perish. Spurgeon in his last sermon, he also said that his service, or the service of Christ, or serving Christ, that is peace, love, and joy. And he goes on to say, Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God help you to enlist under the banner of Christ Jesus. These are Spurgeon's um, last part of his last sermons. But we're not going to go too far into the history, but we'll go back to the book of Acts just a few Sundays ago, maybe several Sundays ago, when uh, Stephen was uh, stoned to death. What did he say? He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. It tells you that he was immediately and consciously aware that Jesus is awaiting him. He has run the race. He has completed the task. His ministry is complete. And now he's saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. There is no doubt in there. There is confidence. There is confirmation. So today we'll, I'll be preaching about the pastor or the missionary, Paul's last word to a congregation that was uh, dear to him. Not the congregation per se, but to the elders or the overseers of this church. So the first part of that chapter, chapter 20, again, from 1 to 6, he's talking about moving about, uh, acquiring uh, several disciples with him. You see, again, the immediacy of moving and leading from chaos to 
a mission moving from um, uh, attempts by the devil to dissuade him and maybe shake him a little bit into, no, I'm, I'm, I still have a race to finish. I still have a task to complete. You also see that the focus on the encouraging the church. If you think about what has gone through his mind just in the last chapter and all the difficulties that he's facing, he is not focused on that. He's still not focused on his own safety, on his own uh, well-being, on his own reputation, on his own legacy. He's like, let's just move on to the next chapter, literally the next chapter, to encourage the brothers, to encourage the church, encourage people who are with me. And you can see also, as as you see all these names following him, it may picture... Uh, give you a picture of, well, yeah, there's a lot of followers. It looks like everybody he's uh, encountering are following him. That is not exactly the case. And you will see that in the book of Acts in the previous 19 chapters and even the, the remainder of the book of Acts, that he's also creating enemies. People are hating him. People are despising him. People are actually going after his life. The message that Paul is preaching, it is not a neutral message. It's the message that will have to create someone who will accept it with gladness and with joy, by God's grace, to embrace that faith. And some people will have to hate that. And that is pretty similar to what we're dealing with right now in our world. I, I don't think uh, if you walk in your Christian walk um, in your, with your family at work or outside of the confines of a comfortable church congregation... Um, you'll, have to, you'll have to declare the truth of God, and that truth of God is offensive to some. It is foolishness to some, and it's offensive to some. It makes people very angry and very upset. But it also, there are people who are destined and elected to receive this word with joy. So Paul, in that first five, six uh, verses, a lot of people are following him. Those are the ones that are uh, chosen by God to follow him as disciples. I'm not going to dwell too much on this first part. I'm going to go to this interesting story of this guy who was famous for one thing and one thing only. That is falling asleep in church. Not only that, but he's falling asleep listening to Paul. I, trust me, I will not be offended if some of you guys fall asleep today, right now. Even though it's Sunday, it's 11.45. Honestly, I will not be offended. <laughs> but I'm just wondering... What was going on in Utica's situation here? And why is the Bible putting this there? I, I, I struggled with this piece a bit. I just wanted to quickly go, and I'm actually going to quickly go to the next part of the chapter. But I'm going to mention a few things here. First, as you can see, just right off the bat, before you go into uh, the Utica's uh, death and, and uh, resurrection, or rising again from the dead, um, it says here, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So first day of the week that church is gathered. That's when we start talking about Sunday as being the Lord's Day. That's the day we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when we see in the book of Acts earlier. So now it becomes the Sunday. The Sabbath is the Old Covenant Holy Day. So now we have this new church, really young church not really young in numbers because it's growing and multiplying exponentially. Um, in, so much so that when you look at the book of Acts, the first few chapters, you will see some numbers here and there. But then all of a sudden, we don't hear about numbers because there are just too many. It is not like 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. It's 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. And the multiplication is like that. 
people who study science here, they know about mitosis. When one cell becomes two, and two become four, and that's what was going on in the church. It was exploding. It was not exploding, and it was not multiplying, because somebody just improved upon the gospel that was preached. It was still the gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's the gospel of repentance that caused the church to grow. And it's so ironic, and it's so sad, that we have right now, we, stri- we move away from that and go to devise different gospel or maybe keep that gospel but just modify it just a little bit here and there so that it would suit the hearers because we want numbers. Well, if you want numbers, go back to the book of Acts and see what the formula was to grow the church. But I digress. I'm just going to move on again. The first day of the week, we gathered together. It is not option. It's a command of the Lord for the believers to meet together and worship Him and read the Word and commune together, have a communion together. It didn't say people who gather together, they liked each other. It did not say that. I did not see that in the Bible. Raise your hand if you see anywhere in the Bible that says, go to church every Sunday and find a church that people are really lovely and lovable and really cool. It is not. I'm not saying that I don't find you all lovable and lovely. I'm only saying that it is not the metric by which we decide if we're going to go to church on Sunday or not. They have gathered together. They have committed to that. And they broke bread. That's uh, part of what the Bible teaches here. I would gather that it's when we get together, we break bread. This is the fellowship. This is the communion. This is the remembrance in remembrance of me that we will get to do later on. It's a celebratory and it's a sign that we are the body of the redeemed. And then you have, uh, for some reason, Luke, who's a physician, and physicians are observant. I'm not trying to say that I'm observant, but physicians are observant. They like to look at certain things and have observations. I don't know specifically why, he mentioned there was lamps and a lot of lights in that, in that place or in that location. Uh, the commentaries that I read said, maybe that explained the fume and the heat in this upper room. Maybe that caused this young man who picked a wrong spot to sit down and listen. And maybe that caused him to fall. But also some um, commentaries say that possibly because there is a lot of false rumors about Christians in that day. They're doing things that are offensive and unholy and, um, and being uh, sinful. So they choose these upper rooms in the dark and no lights, and that was their reputation. Ironically, coming from Egypt, in a largely Muslim country, I still hear about this today. They are still, there are, there are still some Muslims who believe that whatever happens in this, especially like Orthodox Church, because there is an altar, there is a curtain, there are things happening in the background. And I see James nodding. You probably heard that somewhere in the United Arab Emirates. But it's, it's, it's unbelievable that still a rumor that's happening to this day. So to dispel all this rumor, he said, there were lights. We have lamps. We were in the upper room. It was a humble place, but that's where we gathered. We did not have wonderful chapels and a great uh, church building that you can see all around here. But they gathered in their real essence of the spirit of gathering. And I can't help but think about the church that we have all around us today in every, in every corner here and all over the country and all over the world that are empty. 
It's a beautiful building. Architecturally perfect. Looks amazing. Picture perfect. But inside it's dead. I was watching uh, something recently and a commercial came up of, uh, again, uh, a Muslim um, sheikh uh, who lives somewhere in Florida and he's asking for donations from his Muslim brothers because there is a big, beautiful, and he said, that's, he said that in the commercial, big, beautiful church building that lays empty. There's no one there. And we want to convert this to a mosque, an educational center for our people. That is not happening. I'm not talking about Tehran or somewhere in the Middle East. I'm talking about somewhere in Florida. And that is happening quite often. I, I see and I hear about that a lot. It is sad, but at the same point, what happened? What happened in the church objective to move from what was the church meant to be like and look like to the church that we, churches we have today? And now we have this young man who falls down and uh, people think that he's, he's dead. He is dead. And once again, here is a physician who said he's dead. He pronounced him dead. It was not just like he just had a concussion and he was down, but he was dead. Paul uh, revives him and he moves on. Um, again, with this, you would think there is, again, attempts by the devil to create chaos and confusion and distractions in the midst of a very important day. Uh, for Paul. He's not yet, we're not talking yet about talking to the Ephesian elders. This is just before that. This is the stop before that. But still, it's an important moment nonetheless when Paul is preaching and talking. And then you have the devil's scheme to distract us and try to move us away from the task at hand. And how many times have I seen that in my life? How many times have I seen that in other believers' life? Um, for example, today I'm coming to... Um, lead the service and preach and I'm waking up with a really terrible neck pain um, it's kind of just, just, it just annoyances that just quickly takes away your mind from the job that you are to be um, focused on so let's move on to um, the next part starting from uh, verse 13 now when they went ahead uh, to the ship they said for Asos and um, and now he meets the elders of Ephesus. Elders, uh, there's uh, several uh, Greek names for that in the Bible. One of them is uh, basically means overseer or, or episkopos. Epi is a Greek term for over or above. Um, and then skopas, think of scope or endoscopy. If you ever had an endoscopy, that's something you look inside. Uh, or you look actually in the endoscopy, or so scope is looking, epi is over. So those are the elders who are overseeing, looking over the flock, are nourishing the flock, educating and teaching and admonishing, and uh, and being entrusted by God to lead and serve this church from a place of humility, not from a place of like I'm your leader, you're gonna follow me. No, it's. Christ is the head of the church. He always is, he always was, and he always will be. It is not the pastor is the head of the church. It is not the elder that is the head of the church. It is Christ. That's why, just a side note, I don't like uh, when I see the word head pastor. I feel like it's just like maybe, maybe you can call it the main pastor or the lead, but the, the head has a certain connotation that is only Christ is the head of the church. And as you look in this, uh, especially when, he, when Paul talks about how I lived, how I served, he didn't start, I mean, if you think about Paul just about a few months ago, 
amazing miracles happened, not even by his presence, but even his aprons or handkerchiefs, actually raising people or uh, uh, healing, healing people. He did not uh, attest to that. He did not say, look at me, now I'm, now I'm going. Here is my last word. Here is my lasting words. Here is my uh, last sermon that I'm going to preach to these guys before I will no longer see them and they entrust them to the church of Ephesus. He didn't say, let's talk about my actions and my miracles. He did talk about his life as an example. He said, how I lived, not what miracles I performed, not, not how eloquent was my preaching, how persuasive my approach was. He didn't talk about that. He was very transparent. His words and his actions, they aligned. He did not preach on a Sunday, and then the next day he looked very different when you run into him in, uh, in a store somewhere in Ephesus. He was the same man. Um, if we look at 2 Corinthians 4, it talks about this. He says, We renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In the sight of God. He was not hiding anything. He was true and true to himself true to his master, and true to the people that he is serving. How I lived, not how I spoke. He also said, how I lived. And in 2 Corinthians says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and, supreme, and supremely so toward you. He also said, how I served you. Not how I provided education. Not how I gave you sound advice in some times. Now how I provided some leadership skills to some of your elders. Not how I um, gave you some kind of uh, great resources that would, that would be left uh, after I leave. But how I served you. If you look at Romans, one of his, uh, they, call, they call it magnum opus. He's really the, the main uh, the biggest, the most important, in my opinion, and many th- other theologians writing about Paul is in, in the, is the book of Romans. And he starts with this. He said, Paul, a bond servant, doulas of Jesus Christ. He saw himself as a servant of Christ. And by serving people with him, he is serving his master. In Galatians 1, verse 10, it says, I am now seeking approval. He's asking, actually, rhetorically, am I now seeking approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He knew who his master is, and that is Jesus Christ himself. There was was no other masters, no other hidden agenda there that he would try to kind of meet and satisfy so he can keep his itinerary going and busy. He knew who his master was. And he did not, he was not ashamed to declare that. And then he talks about serving you and living among you with tears. Paul had a lot of reasons um, that he was very tearful. Uh, He had tears for sinners. He had also tears for immature believers and weak believers. He also had tears when he was uh, encountered when he encountered threats of false teachers. If you look at Romans 9, verses 2 and 3, it says that I have great sorrow 
and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed. He's actually wishing that he would be taken on the curse of people if that would be enough to make them believe in Christ. I find that just a phenomenal statement by Paul. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So he appeals to them regarding his life. He appeals to them regarding his doctrine that he preached. Not only the life that he lived among them, that was witnessed by all of them, but also the doctrine that he preached. What did he actually, what is the substance of his preaching? He didn't seduce them. He did not seek self-gratification. This is exactly what he admonished Timothy, as I mentioned before, when he was writing to Timothy. Uh, part of that is actually encouraging Timothy to uh, be the pastor, the young pastor that he is, to the church of Ephesus. So he's saying to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. It's not just enough to go ahead and be a good student and pupil of the Bible. And when you stand up and preach, you have great sound doctrine there. But you need actually to mirror that and align that with the life that you serve. Because people are watching, people are seeing that. And they can see the discrepancy and they can see the hypocrisy. So close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on the teaching. Persist. Don't do that once in a while. This is your calling. Persist on this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that is exactly what Paul was doing. So in the final chapter of Paul's uh, ministry to the Ephesians, it's not, I'm not saying that he's about to die now. There will be several chapters yet before we talk about, about that. Uh, still some other trips to Jerusalem and Rome and imprisonments. But in the final chapter, in my life, as the head of my household, as an elder here in the church, um, and in the final chapter of your life, in whatever calling that you have, this is not just a message for apostles. This is not just a message for only someone who is ordained church leader as, a, as an elder or as a deacon. But this is for all of us. You have the mission field around you. That could be simply your house, your family, your children, your work environment, or your, your brothers and sisters in the church where you are a member of. You don't have to be a, titled a leader to be able to minister to people as well. So in the final chapter here in, Paul, in Paul's uh, time here, boldness versus cowardice will be examined. Was he bold or was he coward? Did he give in to the pressures from all over? We just saw the pressure in chapter 19 when this riot came. Uh, he was tempted to go in and just start defending, but... They restrained him from doing so. He says, I did not shrink. That is, that is what he said here. He said, I didn't shrink actually twice. I did not hesitate. I didn't say, well, let me just calculate how I'm going to say this. Let me just talk about how I can approach this from a different angle. I'm going to be bold. I'm not going to be a coward here. I will not shrink from proclaiming the word of God. He said it twice. I did, I did not shrink. In the final chapter... A true labor versus fruitless activities will be examined. As you look at Paul's life and Paul's ministry, you see the fruits everywhere. Yes, you see the enemies and people are getting mad 
and angry at him and they just want to end it right there and then because of the damage that he is causing to a lot of people from both sides, Jews and Greek. But in that final chapter here, his true labor is showing. He was not just engaged in fruitless activities. And how many times do you see that around us in some religious affiliations or, or, or churches where you have a lot of things going on, but the substance and the roots is lacking somewhat. I pray this is not our congregation here. I pray that as we approach the Word of God, as we congregate together and as we pray together and have these activities, that it would be centered around the Word of God, around the truth. It is not about just like, well, we have men's meeting, check. We meet on Wednesday evening, check. We do a prayer before Sunday, check. It is not just doing this and checking off something and moving on. What is the very essence of what we do and why we do that? I have to remind myself, and we, as we sit down and pray and talk, uh, myself and, of course, Charles and Dave, we talk about what we need to be thinking about and praying about in the church. This should be our heart. It's not about to just make sure we have another activity just to, because this is what people do. This is what churches do. Paul and his ministry, he had a lot of fruit. It was not just... Um, a lot of activities here and there. He actually said that with humility, with tears, and with trials. He continued and he endured his work. In the final chapter, your service will be determined if it was for profit of the hearers or to profit you. Charles gave an example of this man who was preaching on the TV screen with this little uh, handkerchiefs and selling this and making a fortune. He we knew that, that we knew what this guy's agenda is. But even as Christians too, sometimes we uh, try to determine what is profitable to us versus what is profitable to the people. Paul, he said, I did not shrink from preaching what is profitable to you. I didn't, he didn't say what seems to be amusing to your ears, what seems to be interesting to you, or the flavor of the day, or the flavor of the season today, or what the next church uh, is doing, and let's do some of that here. He said... I did not shrink, I did not seize, I did not stop, even with tears and toes, to preach to you what is profitable to you. Just like when my kids come to me or, or my wife and say, we want this, it is that's what they want or what they need. As a parent, we have the wisdom and the authority to determine and look at the situation and say, what is, what is needed now? It's not just something that you want. If the congregation comes to you and says, we, we, want, we want this, is that profitable or not? Is that profitable or not? That is the main question that was, uh, by which Paul was examining his preaching. He also said that he taught in public and in private. He was uh, not scared when there is a lot of uh, an open space and he knows that there will be an opposition. People are still hating him. They may come and his life would be in danger. He did not say, let me step back and maybe do some home, uh, home groups this week. He actually did preach in the public square, in the public arena, boldly and without compromise. But he also, at the same time, he prayed with people and talked with people and knew intimately what's going on in each and every person. Not maybe, maybe not every single person, but in essence he did not forsake the private house-to-house prayers and meeting because he is now a big itinerant speaker that he only preaches to a minimum of 2,000 audience. He 
with all this magnitude of who Paul was, he still had time to say, let's go to our brother's house and pray with him and maybe have fellowship with them. That was the kind of minister and pastor Paul was. It's a big task. It's a big ask for us as leaders in the church to emulate that. He also taught Jews and Greek. He did, not decide, he did not go for the comfort level, which is because he knows the Jews. He's one of them. He knows how they think. He knows how they act. He knows what they say. He knows what's behind that. But he's saying that I'm going to preach to both the Jews and the Gentiles. The comfort zone and the uncomfortable zone also will be an area where I will be preaching the word of God. Paul surveys his life. And this is, I feel that especially verse 24, if you look at it with me um, one more time. I think this is the hallmark of the whole passage, the whole uh, ministry of Paul. And it ought to be ours as well. He said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is that ministry, he says? He says, to testify the gospel. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. He qualifies that. He said, this gospel, is, it's all about grace. What is the gospel? Is the good news. Evangelion. It's the good news. Galeon or angel. This is where the, we talk about the creature that will bring good news or has um, uh, good tidings. Evangelion, this is the good news. What is it? It's, it's the person, it's the work of Jesus Christ. That is the hallmark of what Paul was preaching. He did not modify it, he did not change it, he did not contemporize that, making it look uh, contemporary to the culture we're in right now or the year we're in right now. There is no modification in that. There's a passage or a paragraph from Spurgeon when he was talking about uh, this, he was saying, what is the gospel? What is that? What, what are we preaching? He said, and mind you, that was about 200 years ago. I think Spurgeon died uh, late 1800s. Uh, so that was written, of course, before that. So around that time, he says, yet there used to be a gospel in the world which consisted of facts which Christians never questioned. There was once in the church a gospel which believers hugged to their hearts as if it were their soul's life. There used to be a gospel in the world which provoked enthusiasm and commanded sacrifice. Tens of thousands have met together to hear this gospel at peril of their lives. Men, to the teeth of tyrants, have proclaimed it and have suffered the loss of all things and gone to prison and to death for it, singing psalms all the while. Is there not, is there not such a gospel remaining? Or are we arrived at cloud land where souls starve on suppositions? Are the disciples of Jesus now to be fed upon the froth of thought and the wind of imagination, whereon men become heady and high-minded? Nay, rather will we not return to the substantial meat of infallible revelation. That's what he's saying. That's, let's go back to that meaty, doctrine that we have, the infallible revelation, and we cry to the Holy Ghost to feed us upon His own inspired word. What is this gospel which Paul valued before his own life? It was called by him. 
It was called by him the gospel of the grace of God. It's the culmination of God's plan from all along to redeem his people in the person of Christ arriving. As soon as Jesus arrives on the scene of history and he says what? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is at hand. It's now. Paul preached the gospel. He did not amuse people. Paul preached the gospel. He did not leave them in clouds of lofty notions and expressions. He preached the gospel as a testimony to them if they received it. And he preached the gospel as a testimony against them if they rejected it. He preached the gospel complete and the whole counsel of God, the unadulterated gospel, the unfooled around with gospel. It's the word of God straight to you and it's up to you. It is up to you. So that was what Paul preached. One of the things that I uh, came across recently was learning about Polycarp up until just a few months ago. I haven't heard of that man, but he was one of John's disciples. Uh, and he was martyred for his faith. He did not renounce his faith. He had an opportunity to renounce his faith. He did not. Polycarp was an example of this gospel. It's a gospel that was worth dying for. That's what Paul is saying. That He said, I'm, I'm ready. I'm willing to finish the race. I want to finish the race. I'm willing to, uh, even if my life itself, everything within my life is not worth it if it's not to finish the race. Polycarp was an example of this gospel that is worth dying for. The proconsul council tried to persuade him to apostatize just before he was actually, everything was set up for him. The fire was ready for him to actually be uh, killed, set on fire. And he, he asked him, he said, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say down with the atheist. Meaning the Christians are the atheists. And what does Polycarp say? He said, he looks at him grimly at that wicked heathen. And he looked at the multitude and he said in the stadium. And he said gesturing toward them and saying down with the atheist. They are the atheists. They are the ones that are rejecting the gospel of God. He asked him again, swear urged him to reproach Christ and I will set you free. Just, just reproach Christ and I will set you free. And he was actually still gazing at the scene where he would be dying. And what does he say? He said, 86 years have I served him, that is Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? These are the last words or some of the last words of Polycarp. If you continue to listen to his story, he actually was... They tried to set him on fire. The fire actually surrounded him and nothing, nothing. He, he was just there and his body was not consumed by a fire. Even the believers around watching, they started to smell a good aroma of frankincense or something. And finally, that proconsul ordered someone to put a dagger in his chest for him to, be, to, to die. That's how Polycarp died. He hung on to that gospel. He knew that is, without it, you are miserable. Without it, you are depraved. As we approach the last part of the, of the message, when he tells them, I am innocent of your blood. I have done everything. I did not defile the word of God. I have preached with integrity. I have preached with uh, transparency. And I have preached with urgency too. It's, it's about the sense of urgency as you talk about, this is my last time with you. 
I have, I don't know how many hours. This is my last sermon. I'm going to be going tomorrow morning, packing and leaving. And so do you see all this sense of urgency to preach that message to them? So he talked about this um, being innocent of, uh, of their blood. Uh, if you turn with me to Ezekiel 33, you will talk, we'll talk a little bit about that in the Old Testament uh, say. And that is the passage of the watchman. So, you know, in the Old Testament, the watchman, their job is to be standing or sitting or locating at a very high place. They can see from afar if there are any enemies coming and approaching their people. And they have to sound the alarm to the people in the town that there is a danger coming. And if you sleep on the job and you don't do your job right, or you maybe ignore the threats, people's lives are at risk. And these people's blood is in your hand. So here in Ezekiel 33, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them, and make him what? Make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land, and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then... If anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Why? Because he heard the warning. He heard the trumpet sound. And he was still ignorant of all that. So you cannot say it's the fault of the watchman. Let's keep reading. But if he had taken warning... He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. Verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. This is a, a, a very solemn message to, that Paul was talking about. He said, I have done everything that I was given by Christ. I have preached uh, with integrity. Now I'm innocent of your blood. He preached the whole counsel of God. He did not um, um, say, let's just give part today and maybe as things progress, maybe we can have more of the whole counsel of God. Second first Corinthians it says, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. He preached the gospel that was not edited, it was not contemporized, it was not seasonal, it was not selective, it was not apologetic, it was not mixed with human wisdom or human logic or human theories. He read and preached the whole gospel without any changes. Just like his master, Jesus Christ, said in Matthew 28. What did he say? He said, telling the disciples before he, before he leaves, teaching them, you disciples, will teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Second Timothy 4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but what they will do then? I was talking to Brian before, the, before the, the service today. What do they do? When they hear something they don't like, well, they will find something that they will like. 
For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, upon teachers, upon teachers, that will just soothe their ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. As I close, people, Paul here, talking about his ministry and about his life, he's pouring out his heart into these elders. But Paul also says that we are to be imitators of him because he is imitating Christ in turn. In 1 Corinthians he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He also says, I implore you, brothers, be as I am, because I have also become as you are. Join with others in being imitators of me, brothers, and observe those who conduct themselves according to the model you have in us. That's Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 4, you become imitators of us and of the Lord, receiving the word in great affliction with joy from the Holy Spirit so that you become a model for all the believers. Paul's heart with the heart that was aflame. It was not a lukewarm heart. It was fully and wholly sold for Christ. And everything he did, everything he said in his epistles and his ministries testified to that. And that did not happen just again by accumulating some emotions here and there, but being grounded in the word. He, the revelation that he received from Christ Jesus and just even his conversion testimony as you read in the book of Acts is just unbelievable in terms of the amount of revelation that is being given to him. That set his heart aflame, and from that moment on, he was sold, he was recklessly abandoning everything else for the sake of Christ, for the sake of his master. There was a, an old Puritan, uh, was elderly man in his 80s, and he was used to waking up early, and early for Puritans is not early for us. Early for us is maybe 7, 8 o'clock. For Puritans, they wake up earlier than that to have a prayer time and read the Word of God and be with God. And as his body continued to uh, get weaker, people are asking him, why are you, why are you just still doing that? You take it easy. It's still, it's, uh, you've, been, you've been to this for a long time. And he says this to them. He said, shall I not run with all my might now that I see the finishing line in view? Shall we not run now? With all our might, you and I, brothers and sisters, that now that we see the finishing line in view. Let us pray together.